Welcome to the Weekly Beat by Mansa with your hosts Arnold Segawa, Maggie Mutesi, and Dumi Jere, giving you all the info on Africa's big finance and economic stories. The Weekly Beat by Mansa. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to this episode of The Weekly Beat by Mansa Azores. My name is Maggie Omotesi, and uh, I'm not alone today. However, I must say I'm enjoying being in a driver's seat, and I'm getting quite comfortable. So I don't know what Dumi thinks about this. But Dumi, anyway, how are you? And how is Johannesburg? <laughs> I've got no problem with that. Eh? Uh, <laughs> it's time we let, you know, equality uh, take place, you know, women must also uh, take this driver's mm. seat and we just sit at the, in the background. Uh, I'm doing all right. Johannesburg is all right. Looking forward to closing off the year now. I think there's that year end fatigue that's creeping in. So I can't mm. wait to get some rest soon. Mm. At least the clubs are open. So the party is ongoing. I feel like there's no COVID anymore. I look at my uh, my Instagram and Twitter and I'm thinking, where am I living? I need to be in, you know, in places that are happening. And then the airports are full. So yeah, that's something uh, to look forward to. We have a special guest joining us today from uh, Spain in Barcelona. Uh, William Brent, the Chief Marketing Officer at Husk Power Systems. And uh, William, so great to have you on the program. Thanks, Tessie. Great to be here. And thanks to Mansa Media for having me. Awesome. How is it in Spain? How is, uh, you know, I feel like I need to fly somewhere in just a month to, to experience whatever everybody's experienced. Yeah, well, you know, it's typical Spain. The clubs are open. People are dancing. Music is playing. So come on over. <laughs> I hope we don't go back to partial lockdown. I was reading somewhere on the news. Uh, you know, but I guess uh, we just have to be very careful. Mask up still. Do we still do that? Or now we're just vaccinated? <laughs> People are still using their masks. There will be, we're, not, we're not being reckless or anything. But, you know, we yeah. are with live music shows and uh, it's exciting to have some normality back for sure. Mm. William, today we're talking about energy access in Africa, but not just energy, but clean energy and the trends, the opportunities, but most importantly, understanding where we are. Of course, maybe just like me, you've had this line over and over again that over 650 million Africans do not have access to electricity. But also, you know, there's been conversations ongoing and I understand, uh, William, that you guys or your CASC just announced ambitious targets to scale up uh, rural energy economy and mini grids in sub-Saharan Africa, which is really awesome looking at some of the things you, you know, you're trying to achieve, connecting at least 1 million customers and uh, building at least 5,000 renewable energy mini grids. I mean, bravo, this is quite ambitious and uh, I have to say congratulations and uh, we're looking forward to be following on your reporting on this and, uh, and what you'll be doing. But um, when we talk about clean energy, especially right now, um, when the conversations around climate change in Africa, we, we're looking at uh, COVID-19 and its impact on investments, especially coming into different sectors. Where are we and uh, how would you describe this entire transition to us? So maybe just to back up for one second, you know, so you mentioned I think mm. around six. 600 million people in, in Africa, mostly sub-Saharan Africa, have no access to electricity. Right. Many more have access only to unreliable, right? So you've got uh, a situation where there's a ten, hundreds of millions of people living in the dark, but you've also got another multiple hundreds of millions who are 
living without reliable electricity, which doesn't really allow them to engage in economic activity. You know, if you want to run a business, having reliable electricity is really important. So, you know, we're, we're really trying to address both uh, of those communities, not only the ones who are living in rural places outside of cities with poor infrastructure and no access, but also the ones who really want to to transition to the new energy economy and rely on it to to build economic growth and opportunity. So I think there are a couple of different directions that we're coming at this problem. As far as Husk Power System, which is the the company I work for, you know, we've been around for more than a decade and our whole mission from the very beginning has been to try to tackle these two issues um, by replacing diesel jet sets, by augmenting uh, the infrastructure that's there that the national grids and utilities have been unsuccessful in providing and to do it for as many people as possible. So we've always had that ambition. And last week at uh, COP in Glasgow, we did have an opportunity to, to put forward some bold visions for where we think we as a company can go. But also we really wanted to make an appeal to the whole industry that we work within uh, to raise the level of ambition for achieving universal energy access. And that's just, you know, that's the private sector. It's also government, it's finance institutions and others. Where we are today in terms of investment, if you just look at the mini grid space, so mini grids, mostly solar plus battery power generation and distribution that, that serve these communities, according to the World Bank, we, we need to get to $200 billion and we've only invested $5 billion. So uh, a very huge gap. Uh, in finance that needs to be bridged, and we can get more into that. But, um, you know, there is a start, but we've got, you know, a lot of work to do that needs to be accelerated and and scaled quickly. Mm. Um, I want to bring in Dumi. I read today from the International Renewable Energy Agency that uh, the demand for electricity will trip on the African continent in uh, less than 10 years. That's 2030. But somewhere also under, they said, you know, we would require investments of about 27 to 31 billion U.S. dollars per year at this time to be able to achieve the goals we have. Um, Sounds quite ambitious. Uh, Dumi, I just want to bring you in. It sort of makes sense anyway, because, um, I mean, we've been sitting with projections for the past 10 years or so that say we, the population of uh, Africa is scheduled to double by about 2050. So if we're going to triple our needs in the next 10 years, it means obviously our population is growing. So we are on target to double our population in the continent. Therefore, it, it also then follows that there's more need for, for more electricity. And I suppose this then, um, uh, to tie it back into uh, what uh, William was talking about, for me, it's it's... I like the concept of clean energy and I think there are so many benefits to it. And that's why I guess from the COP conversations, uh, some countries are trying to move away from coal. I don't know how easy that is going to be given that there are um, yeah, like lots of deposits in all these countries uh, of coal, but it's not as clean as uh, solar and wind, and all of those other things. So I guess what I wanted to find out from William is when we look at uh, the clean energy, your solars, your wind, and all of those things, do you think uh, Africa really has got the required capacity to, to actually run those? Do you feel that Africa can actually pull the continent running on clean energy only? 
or is that um, or are we asking for too much too soon? So maybe I'll start by, you know, as an American living in Spain, I'm not somebody who thinks of myself as having much uh, authority on making predictions for what Africa should do. Right. So maybe I'll begin there. You know, if, that was a nice <laughs> disclaimer, William. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> I have a strong point of view on this. You know, my feeling is that, yeah. you know, I, I think Africa can be a global leader, actually. I think the, the natural resource is there for Africa to, to take a leadership position, uh, not only to, to power itself, but actually to export power to other markets as well uh, using renewable energy. You know, does that mean that countries in sub-Saharan Africa should be making that transition as quickly as some of the more developed economies? Probably not. You know, do they have the capacity to do that? I think it, it's uh, still a big question mark. But I would also just say, does relying on traditional energy methods, has it proven out to be a, a great solution for countries in Africa either? You know, I mean, if you look at where we are today, most of the utilities in sub-Saharan Africa are losing money, both on an mm. operational and a capital expenditure basis. So it's not as if they're performing particularly well using traditional methods, right? So to and add to that, you know, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, has said very clearly this year that solar is, is the lowest cost electricity in the history of energy, right? So, you know, if the economics make sense and, you know, it's an economic opportunity for Africa to lead in innovation, um, I think that uh, it makes perfect sense to, to do that, uh, especially when the status quo business as usual approaches haven't really done so well. I think hearing you speak, William, uh, when you say uh, Africa is a natural leader, it's like Africa is blessed with wind and sun, you know, and, and all of this. So they, they should lead eventually. This brings me back to the fact that, you know, maybe the conversation we should be having should be investments into uh, clean energy. Because if we have all these resources naturally blessed, then the question is, how do we transform this attracting money to be able to develop different products to take care of energy needs that we have across the continent. And of course, over the years, we've seen also rise in you know energy startups across the continent. Do me, I don't know if it's the same case in South Africa, but in East Africa, there is a lots of those in Kenya and Uganda that we've covered also over the year to be able to come up with different products or, you know, solutions, innovations to cater for energy needs within the region. But this, for me, affirms that we need to be discussing how to bring in investments in the sector. I like the fact that you are talking of investment because uh, if I remember correctly, your organization, William, you folks made um, a presentation or an announcement at uh, the COP26 around the various investments that uh, you're planning to make uh, within sub-Saharan Africa, I guess by extension, South Asia, uh, including, I guess, India and all those other countries. And also, when you first started speaking, you mentioned that from an investment perspective, this is not something that one can do alone, uh, but there's need for collaboration from governments, uh, financiers and other companies to, uh, you know, to sort of increase their level of ambition, as you put it. And when we then look at that, I guess from an investment perspective, uh, somebody else listening on the other side, how are you folks planning to call it achieve your ambitious plans? Or perhaps maybe you can, you know, maybe in brief, just also let us know about some of these ambitious plans. And from an investment perspective, I guess everybody else can then sort of 
feed off the information that you'll be sharing. What are some of yeah. the ambitious plans that um, Ask Power Systems is planning to implement in Sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah. Uh, so let me just quickly sort of run through a couple of things that I think are at the macro level. So, the, you know, the the Rockefeller Foundation, IKEA Foundation, Bezos Earth Fund, they announced last week at COP that they were investing $1.5 billion in concessional finance with the intent of leveraging another you know, let's say 10 to $15 billion of more commercial capital to come in to scale these types of solutions that Husk Power builds, mini grids, et cetera. That's already happening, right? That's going to mean a, a large influx of, of new money into this space starting in 2022. Uh, so that's sort of at the, at the sort of macro level, you know, and then you look at countries like Nigeria, which uh, has, you know, put forward a vision of a public-private partnership with the energy sector taken out a $350 million loan from the World Bank to launch the Nigeria Electrification Project. And a significant amount of that money will be going to rural electrification, including mini-grid. So we're already part, plus power is part of that, that uh, program, that initiative. We've been uh, given support by the Rural Electrification, rural electrification Agency to, to build more mini-grids in Nigeria. So that's also a significant amount of money. And, and similar programs are going to be rolled out in Ethiopia and other countries in sub-Saharan Africa. So Money's on the move. I think where I feel like there's a, uh, a gap, however, is there's just not enough what, what we would call absorption capacity. So you're mobilizing these billions of dollars. Where are the, are the companies and projects there, the bankable projects, the bankable companies, shovel-ready projects? Where is that pipeline, right? And that's where Husk really feels like it has a responsibility to, to increase ambition. That's why we made this announcement last week, you know, 5,000 mini-grids, a million customers, including half a million business customers, because we feel like powering those businesses is the lifeblood of, of creating opportunity in these rural communities. So, you know, the money's coming, but the companies like Husk need to step up. And we, we certainly aren't the only one out there, but we want to, you know, we really want to put a stake in the ground and, and, and call attention to the need for more action. Uh, on the part of the private sector side, but we need the public sector to support us in doing that. Last week, as I was compiling a report on one of our newsletters, I read somewhere quote that was very interesting. African ministers are attending the Africa Energy Week in Dubai. And of course, they were called on to ignore or to stop the oil and all of that and move into you know, clean energy, clean ways, especially countries that are even just discovering oil, the likes of Kenya, Uganda, and, and everything else. And I want to bring that into context here as we're talking about clean energy. Where does that meet with the oil-rich countries, William, or where does that in this entire context of clean energy? Yeah, I mean, so we're in the midst of a transition, right? I think everybody agrees on that mm. from you know traditional energy to clean energy. That transition can't happen overnight. It would be irresponsible to, su- to suggest that it could, right? If we, if we stopped you know, extracting oil or other fossil fuels from the ground tomorrow, the global economy would come to a screeching halt, right? So, you know, obviously it's going to take time. It's the the whole argument of don't tell us what to do. You know, it works if, you know, it's a level playing field for the technologies that are out there, but it's not a level playing field, right? I mean, coal is dead as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I lived in China for 15 years. I, I breathed enough coal dust in my in that 15 years to last three lifetimes. Um, And China, you know, they're moving away from coal, right? And it's not just China, you know, insurance companies, reinsurance companies. It's too expensive to back coal anymore. It doesn't make any economic sense. So if if, if we're looking at the central coffers of African governments 
and realizing that they're stretched already, why would you invest more good money after bad into fossil fuels when it's more expensive than renewables right now? Not in all cases, but you know, certainly for coal, you can make the case for natural gas as well. Why not embrace the future of energy, lead in it, and save a lot of money in the process, right? While also benefiting your people. So I go back to the the sort of fundamentals of the economics play. Forget all the the history of colonial powers in different countries or resource colonialism or all of that stuff, and just look at the numbers, right? And if we just look at the numbers, if you're the a central banker in the finance ministry or energy or whatever you know uh, planners out there, the numbers don't work anymore. And it's just too expensive. And the insurance companies that have to underwrite all of these things are now looking at it and thinking, well, I have to invest in infrastructure for the next 30 years. That's not a bad investment. I'm not going to insure that. So, you know, I think the reality is just uh, if you purely make it based on uh, the economics, both internal and external mm. factors, the, the numbers don't pan out for fossil fuels. Mm. William, uh, that's a very important point to make. And uh, much as we would have loved to go ahead, I think uh, we're running out of time. We only have 15 minutes to discuss all of this, as you can imagine. But uh, it's so clear there are lots of opportunities um, in the sector, you know, but also challenges still remain. And I want to get your final thoughts on this, Dumi. What does the future look like for you in your perspective? I would say it's time for us to move from um, all of these talk shops and uh, proceed to making proper action on the ground, which is why I salute what uh, Hasp Power <laughs> Systems is doing. They're getting off the talk shop side of things and really getting down to business within the continent with all these ambitious, bold targets that they have put in for, for 2030, the mini grids, the million well, the million plus connections that are, are hoped and all of those things. So I think that's where we now need to move to because when we look at uh, all these uh, conversations that happen at uh, COP26 and who knows whatever other COP is coming on. Yes, they are vital. However, I don't think they are going to meet all the ambitious targets that they are setting for themselves. And that's something that's worrying. I was watching an address at the closing of COP by the chairman of the COP platform, and he was apologizing for the way some of the negotiations went. And that just shows you that it's very likely that they are not going to meet some of these targets. Yet next year, we'll probably have another COP session and we'll just continue talking again. And so it's time for us to do, you know, the little small work. Uh, if we compound all of those things, that now turns into much, much bigger things. So salute to Husk Power Systems and what they're doing. If only we could replicate those models, then we're able to execute them at scale. I mean, Dumi, you make a very valid point, especially when it comes uh, to moving from uh, just events, summits and conferences to now doing the actual work. Let me just bring in William as we wind up. Um, What are your final thoughts and what opportunities or what do we see for the sector? Yeah, so two thoughts. One is, you know, the developed economies um, have a responsibility as the major emitters in history in terms of industrialization to support economies and emerging economies in sub-Saharan Africa to make a transition. That that absolutely shouldn't be something that is imposed on those countries. They need support in making that transition, building the capacity. And and what happened at COP is not a step in the right direction, but not nearly enough in terms of providing that support. That's one, one comment. The second is that just to take this down to a human level for a second before we wrap up, I was just in Nigeria. We launched our first six months there. And I met this young guy named Abu Bakar who runs a 
clean water filtration company. He filters the water, he packages it and sells it to people in his community of about a thousand households. And here, here's a guy who only used diesel generators to power his water manufacturing uh, equipment up until today. And now he's connected to solar. Um, and he's saving about 40% on his monthly electricity bill, right? And think about what that means. Here's a young guy, very entrepreneurial. He's going to reinvest that money. He's going to hire new people. He's going to start new businesses. And that's creating economic opportunity for a very young population that has a high level of unemployment in these communities. That's like real impact on the ground. So, you know, we need to mobilize more money. We need to step up and, and fulfill their responsibilities. And then companies like us need to deliver, right? And that's where I, I'm super excited. And I think there's a ton of opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it's very important to walk the talk, I think, from uh, this conversation, you know, beyond investments. Uh, there also lies commitment uh, in terms of just deciding and saying we, these are the targets, we want to achieve them and we're moving forward and we have to look at the money because at the end of the day, investment does not just come with talk, but it comes with progress and action and where there is actually a plan to, to achieve all of that. Um, thank you so much, William Brent, for having time to speak to us today. Do me, of course, as always, thanks for joining us from Johannesburg. And uh, to all our listeners, thank you so much. And uh, if you want to check out other episodes or listen to a uh, previous one, visit our website, www.mansamedia.africa. You can also follow us uh, on uh, social media pages at mansamedia underscore Africa. My name is Maggie Omotesi, and uh, thanks. As Dumi always says, here's to peace and profits. The Weekly Beat by Mansa with your hosts, Arnold Segawa, Maggie Mutesi, and Dumi Jerry, giving you all the info on Africa's big finance and economic stories. The Weekly Beat by Mansa.